word and go to Matthew's gospel and the fifth chapter. If you're using one of the Bibles provided for you there in the seats, it's found on page 810. That, in that last song that we sang, uh, that line is intriguing to me. Um, Your grace is enough. And it says uh, towards the end of the song, heaven reaches out to us. That's a, that's a thought-provoking lyric there. Um, that would be really interesting just to spend some time meditating on that, the, the implications of, of heaven reaching out to us um, and, and how that is our only hope of heaven reaching out to us. So I really appreciate the musicians and all the work they do uh, to lead us in that part of our service. It is it's so good for our souls to sing praises to God. Matthew uh, chapter 5, uh, starting verse 17, it says this, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's understand a little bit about where this falls in Jesus' sermon. Jesus has begun the sermon and is primarily directed to the disciples who have gathered around him. Of course, at the end of the sermon, we know by now that uh, from having studied this, that we know that in a couple chapters, at the end of the sermon, a great crowd will have gathered and will have been amazed at what Jesus has been teaching here. So Jesus' comments were primarily directed to the disciples, but they also were intended for an effect on the crowd that had gathered around as well and was gathering at this moment. As Jesus is saying these words, more and more people are, are coming into the circle and coming around to listen to what he's saying. And so Jesus says this. He says, don't think I've come to abolish the law. Now, the reason why that's important is because he has just said a few minutes uh, uh, previous to this, he said, you're the salt of the earth and you're the light of the world. And he ends that section, that little pericope, if you will, that little section of scripture where he says that you need to let your light shine before others so they can see your good works. So he's already said that it's important for the disciple to have external good works and external righteousness that is observable by other people. But then he gets to the heart of the matter, literally here in this text, verses 17 through 20. Now, this is a text of Scripture that has, is notoriously, if you're a Bible student, is notoriously difficult to um, fully comprehend and understand. And the reason why is not so much of what Jesus says here about righteousness and the law, but it's more about what Paul says later on in passages like we read as, during the call to worship in Romans chapter 8 and in other passages of Scripture. 
But I think to understand what Jesus is teaching here, we need to go back to this time and understand that Jesus is teaching this before Paul has even picked up a pen. And this is before Paul has even been converted to Christianity. So what Jesus is doing here, he's just introducing this concept of the law and the prophets and righteousness. And so how Matthew uses righteousness is a little bit different than how Paul uses it, which we'll see later on. But nonetheless, this text of Scripture gives us much to wrestle with this morning and much to think about. In fact, Jesus knew this, and so he sets the the principle, he sets what he's teaching here in these few verses that I just read. And then for the rest of the chapter, he gives six examples to unpack the lesson that he was teaching. So it's very important that today that we understand what Jesus is saying here because this will lay the foundation for the next three messages or so as we go through these six examples that Jesus was giving to prove his point. So if we don't get this right, then we're not going to understand what he was saying in the examples that are to follow. So we want to take time today to to unpack this a little bit and, and to see exactly what Jesus is teaching here. Now, it's interesting, at the end of this, he talks about, uh, or in the middle of this, he talks about being considered great. Now, when I was thinking about this, this idea of greatness, um, a, a statement came to my mind, and it was a statement made by a boxer. Um, he said, uh, I am the greatest. Now, in, in the adult discipleship hour, I gave an illustration, uh, a boxing illustration, and now I'm given a boxing illustration. And I said then, I'm not a boxing fan. I actually don't even like boxing at all. But they just fit today. So I guess today I'm a boxing fan, but normally I'm not. But here's my illustration. So we had this boxer who said he proclaimed, I am the greatest. And when he did that, he actually wrote a poem. And this boxer was the name of Cassius Clay. And he wrote this in getting ready to, def, uh, to fight uh, a list. Sonny Liston, and as he was getting ready to, to fight uh, this, this, this uh, champion fighter and trying to, to move up in the ranks himself, he said that uh, he, he started putting out these poems and things of like this, and he became later on famous for doing this. Well, this was one of those where he said, I'm the greatest. And in this poem that he said, he would say things like, um, if I say a cow can lay an egg, don't ask me how, just get the skillet ready. Or he would say things like, if I say a horse can lose to a mouse in a race, put your money on the mouse. So this is what this boxer named Cassius Clay, whom most of you know, later changed his name to Muhammad Ali. This is what he would say. He says, I'm the greatest. Muhammad Ali was known for many things. Humility was not one of them, okay? And here, what he was saying is that this is what greatness looks like, is that I can do whatever I want. Now, you see on the screen, the greatest in God's kingdom, and we take that, the title from the message, comes from this text here when he says that whoever does these things and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Something just doesn't seem right to me to say the greatest in God's kingdom. It feels a little bit like Muhammad Ali, right? It feels out of place. It feels like I might get hit by lightning or something if I say these things. But what was Jesus talking about here? He clearly, he says, someone's going to be called least, someone's going to be called great. 
what is, the, what, what is he getting at here? What, what is his point? And, and then if it's indeed possible to be considered great in the kingdom of heaven, how does one become great in the kingdom of heaven? Well, I submit to you this thesis statement that I would like to frame our discussion today. The greatest in God's kingdom are those who follow Christ's example by pursuing righteous living. Let me say it again and put it on the screen. The greatest in God's kingdom are those who follow Christ's example by pursuing righteous living. This is what Jesus is talking about in this text. And we're going to unpack this and we're going to see exactly what he means here and hopefully be an encouragement to us on our pilgrimage. You see, righteous living that Jesus is talking about here is different than what people came to expect and embrace during that day. And so this morning, what I hope to to find or I hope to explain is that we will see that Jesus is calling you and me to a different kind of righteousness than what was originally thought of in their minds. This is a righteous living that is guided by Scripture and one that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So let's look at these two, these two ideas. First of all, Jesus is calling us to a righteous living that is guided by the Scriptures. Jesus is calling us to a righteous living that is guided by the Scriptures. And we need to notice, first of all, Jesus' commitment to the Scripture. He says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, what is he talking about there when he says the law and the prophets? Well, it's basically understood that what Jesus was referring to is the Old Testament Scriptures there. He's talking about the first five books, what is generally known as the law. So we have the, the Pentateuch or the first five books of what we call the Old Testament, what uh, your Jewish friend would call the Torah which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's those five books that give the moral, the civil, and uh, the ceremonial uh, requirements that is needed or under that time was needed to please God. Now, Jesus here, when he came on the scene, he was doing things what people were perceiving a little bit different. We won't take time to go there, but if you were to go to Mark's gospel, you would see that Mark begins to show that Jesus began doing some pretty miraculous things even before all 12 of the disciples were called to him. So Jesus was already at work doing these things, but he was doing things differently. In fact, one of the things that he did before he finished calling all 12 of his disciples was that he healed someone on the Sabbath. Now, if you know anything about the law, you would know that one of the rules that was cherished and tightly held to was that of don't work on the Sabbath. In fact, the scribes and the Pharisees had codified what that meant. You see, if you read in Exodus, in Exodus 20, you would see that, remember the Sabbath day, and to keep it holy, that's the law. But the interpreters of the law, the scribes and the Pharisees, began to interpret that for everyone. It began to codify what that meant of how much work that could be done, how much you could walk, how long you could walk, and all sorts of different things that we're saying that if you're going to keep the Sabbath holy, this is what it means and this is what it looks like. Now, Jesus didn't say that. Jesus healed on the Sabbath day. And the people were looking at him saying, wait a minute here. Who is this guy? Who is this Jesus? He, here's somebody, he, he didn't grow up in our schools. He, 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 we, we don't know who he is. I mean, he's the son of a carpenter and he's starting to do these things on the Sabbath. 
He must be wanting to abolish the law. Now, Jesus is responding to this. And obviously, he's heard these rumors and he says, don't think I've come to abolish the law. I haven't come to put away. No, I've come to fulfill the law. You see, one thing that we need to understand, it's imperative to understand. If you're going to get Christianity, if you're going to get being a disciple of Christ right, you got to understand this. And that is this, that Jesus perfectly obeyed the law when he was on earth. When he was born as a human, he perfectly obeyed the law. That's the reason why he came. So that he could do that. Why? So he could fulfill the requirement of the law knowing that you and I couldn't do it. See, that's why it's so important for us to understand that Jesus' life of perfect obedience was true. Because without that, we wouldn't have any hope. Because if Jesus sinned one time, if he disobeyed the law in one way, and if he violated the law in one way, or he didn't fulfill a prophecy of the prophets here, if he didn't do that in just one simple way, then his death would have been invalidated. And you and I would have no hope. And so here, Jesus is saying, don't think I've done No, I'm committed to the scriptures here. He says, I'm definitely committed to fulfilling what the scriptures say. And it's important to understand that when we look at verse 17 and we read, he says, don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. When he says, I have not come to abolish them, that is written in the, 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 utmost, the utmost strongest way possible. Uh, in the original language. It's actually written in what's called a double negative there, meaning that it's removing all doubt or all any form of possibility. He says, there is no possible way, do not even entertain for a second, that I've come to abolish the law. It is not possible for me to do that. Why? I've just explained it. Because he needed to obey the law so that you and I could have hope. So Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets. Now, how did he do that? Well, let me just give a few examples of, particularly in the prophets here, of how he did this. And we could go on and on and on about how Jesus did this. But just for illustration's sake, just so you can see, let me share these examples, these three quick examples with you. In Micah 5, 2, he was prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And Jesus was born in Bethlehem. In Hosea chapter 11, in verse 1, Jesus is, the Messiah said that he would be called out of Egypt. Do you remember during, in Luke's gospel, and the taxation when Jesus and the, the census that was having when Joseph and Mary while she was pregnant she had to go or no, it was after the pregnancy had to go to Egypt do you remember this in, in fleeing it was after uh, the, um, the massacre of the innocents that they went to Egypt and, the, and, and, and Luke is careful to record for us that it might be fulfilled out of Egypt I have called him this is the fulfillment of that prophecy. In Psalm 22, we see a prophecy about soldiers mocking and gambling over clothes. All throughout church history, from the earliest days, Psalm 22 has been understood to be a prophetic psalm about the Messiah. And Jesus fulfilled that. And so Jesus had this commitment to Scripture. This is what framed his life. He didn't come to redefine everything and just kind of do and, and, and throw everything away. No, he came to fulfill them and obey them. The Scriptures, they guided him. And one of the examples of this is found in the temptation of Jesus. And again, we won't take time to go there, but I, I just want to share this with you a little bit of, of how it's recorded of Jesus. It says that he was led by the Spirit to go into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil for 40 days. 
We have three temptations recorded for us. Now, my personal belief is that the, uh, the, the enemy tempted him much more than just those three times. I don't have any biblical support for that other than the fact that if the enemy had the opportunity, he would not limit himself to three times. But whatever, what I can be 100% sure on is that the enemy definitely tempted him three times. And each time, it's remarkable that Jesus responds and refutes the temptation of the enemy by quoting Scripture. He went back to the law. He went back to the Old Testament. He went back and said, no, no, it's written of this, and so this is why I can't do this. And three times the enemy in the wilderness while Jesus was fasting was trying to get Jesus to really give up his Messiahship, and three times Jesus responded by Scripture. Everything that he was doing was being guided by Scripture. Even the death that Jesus died, the crucifixion was, was foretold, and, and he went down that path. And so the point is this, is that if Jesus is calling us to a righteous living, we can take from Jesus' example that it needs to be framed by the Scriptures. You see, Jesus was committed to obeying the Scriptures and fulfilling the law. And the Bible talks about even in terms of Jesus enjoying this. It's important to understand this point here. Jesus enjoyed fulfilling the law so we could enjoy righteous living without fear of condemnation. We're told in John chapter 4 that when Jesus was told that, he said when he was hungry and the disciples were trying to get him to eat, and he said, no, 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 my food is to do God's will. He says, that's where I find nourishment. That's where I find joy. In, in Hebrews chapter 12, we see the writer there says that Jesus, it was joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. It was joy for Jesus to go to the cross. Jesus' nourishment and fulfillment came from obeying God and obeying his word. Why? Because I believe this. Jesus enjoyed fulfilling this law so we could enjoy righteous living without fear of condemnation. See, God is still calling us to righteous living. See, there's, there's a misunderstanding sometimes between law and grace and holiness and, and, and our personal walk with God. A lot of times they say, well, you know, we're not under the law anymore. We're under grace. And so that can kind of give us license to do whatever we want. And this is not true. God has actually called us to righteous living in holiness. He has said, if you're my disciple, I'm calling you to this type of living. But I fulfilled the law so you can do it without fear of condemnation. Because guess what? You're going to mess up. Guess what? You're going to violate the law. Guess what? You're going to disobey me at times. And you're going to fail in some of these points here, he says. But I fulfilled it already. Not to get you out of living righteously, but so that you can do so with freedom, without fear of condemnation. Not so that you try to earn your way into my favor, but so you can do it because it's the right thing to do. And we're going to see because that's what brings the most joy and satisfaction. And so I'm going to to fulfill the law, Jesus says. I'm committed to this so you can be righteous in your living without fear of condemnation. So when you fail, there's forgiveness. There's no judgment. And you can have joy in this. And you can have satisfaction. You see, as I mentioned before, I think, or maybe it was an adult discipleship, I can't remember, but the law only brought condemnation. The law couldn't save people. It could only bring guilt and defeat. 
And one of the purposes of the law was to show that man could not measure up. It came after transgressions, Galatians says. It came because of transgressions. It came to show the law came. You see, God didn't, you know, in the Garden of Eden, God didn't give the law right away. It was actually several hundred years went by before the law actually came. Generations went by before the law came in. Well, why did the law come in? Well, it was to prove to man that they needed a Savior. Because all of us always tend to think that we can do it. All of us tend to slip into the thinking to think that we are strong enough or good enough, or if we just work hard enough, we can do it. And God says, I brought the law to show you that no, you can't. You can never measure up. So Jesus fulfilled this law on our behalf so that we could live according to the moral code that is set forth by a holy God without fear of failure and judgment. And that's why in 1 John we find out that the commands or the laws of God, they're not burdensome to us because he's already fulfilled them. And it doesn't get us out of it. It doesn't mean that we don't have to live a righteous life. It just means that we can do so without fear of judgment and we can do so with greater motivation and we can actually, we can actually do it with joy. And so we should find joy in obeying God because we know that God is good and that he wants what's best for his children. And so whatever God asked us to do, it's, 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 it's what's best for us. And that's the reason why. So if God tells us to do something or not to do something, we, could, we should obey it with joy because we can trust that our Father wants what's best for us. One of, there's several TV shows that are, are, are kind of good to watch in the beginning, and then at the end they kind of get boring. Um, America's Got Talent is one of those shows. Okay, I like watching during the uh, the beginning stages of the show, and you get different people in there with their different talents and abilities, or lack thereof, um, that are competing or trying to compete on this sh- show. And one of the things about it is that it, it, what makes the show a little bit more difficult is that it's it's not just a singing competition, so it's like all across the board. I got magicians and ventriloquists, and you know all sorts of things in there. But you know, one of the things that I, I've often said, I've said that the, when, I, when I became a father, that transition in my life probably changed me more than any other transition in my life. It, it, it really has changed how I view so much of life, okay? Like, I, when I see this show, America's Got Talent, before I had children, when I would see something like that, I would view that show through the eyes of the contestant, through the one who is out there. And I would think, I'd be so nervous. Or I would think, you know, man, that'd be cool to have that ability or something like this. But you know, when I watch this show now, I don't view this show through the eyes of the contestant. I almost, almost every time I see the show, I view it through the eyes of the parents waiting backstage. And one thing that, and I'm telling you, it changes me. It, 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 it has softened me up. I, I cry so much easier, as you saw last week, okay? Um, you're, I just, it's changed me because I see it from a dad's point of view. I see how that, and one of the things that has always impressed me about it is that every one of those parents only want what's best for their kids. They want their kids to shine. 
I used to not understand. I remember being in high school and I remember hearing about an athlete who had children and his children were going to break his records. And I remember thinking to myself, that would be awful to be the dad and have your kid break your records. That would be terrible, you know? You got to, you got to, you know, teach the kid who's boss all the time, you know, type thing like this. I'm a dad now. Man, I want my kids to excel and go beyond what my abilities are. How is that any different than the father? And it's not. In fact, I think that God gives us that as parents, as a dad. He gives that to me to give me a glimpse of how God views me. You see, God only wants what's best for me. He's, he's, not, he's not putting me through, uh, he's not putting requirements upon me to make me, my life miserable. He's not, he's not saying, don't do this so that I won't have a good time or so that I won't enjoy life. No, God says, don't do that so that you will enjoy life. He says, do this so you will find satisfaction. And so this is the reason why we can actually approach righteous living and we can actually enjoy it and we can enjoy obeying God and saying, no to what he says no to and saying yes to what he says yes to and being committed to it because we know God is a perfect father and he wants what's best for us. You see, Jesus, he knew that about his father. That's the reason why he says, for the joy, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Because he knew it was what was best. He knew that that would bring the greatest joy and satisfaction. Jesus had this commitment to Scripture, this commitment to obeying the law and what God had said for him. And he left no stone unturned. He says this, look in the text here. He says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot will pass away until all the the law is fulfilled. The iota, as I put it on the screen so you can see what it looks like, is a Greek letter. It's the smallest Greek letter, very similar to our I. Um, and it's the smallest one in the Greek language. He also says there a dot there. Most people understand that to be what's called a seraph in the Hebrew language. And um, it's just a slight mark that if you don't have it, it really changes what it means. And the, only, the best illustration I can think of is I put these letters of our English letter uh, on the screen. The difference between a P and an R is just one little stroke of the pen. Or the difference between a P and the F is just closing out those two lines on the F. And so very, very similar letters. Now to us, we're, we're so used to reading the English language that they're so distinct to us that we don't even see it. But if you look at it, what the differences actually are, it's very very small. And what Jesus is saying here is that even the smallest of the stroke of the pen will be fulfilled. Now, the reason why is because it's super important because if you didn't have those little pen marks, it would change the meaning of the words. Pun is different than run, which is different than fun. They all mean different things, but it's just a little stroke of the pen that makes a difference. The difference of including or excluding a seraph in the Hebrew language as seen in Exodus 34, 14 would change the reading from do not worship another God to do not worship one God. That seraph is very, very important there. Changes the whole meaning. So what Jesus here is saying, he says, I've been attentive to every little letter and every little pen stroke because... 
Keeping this is so important to the ultimate plan of God. And he had joy in this. He had this commitment to Scripture. But notice he also had some instruction about this Scripture here that he was giving to us here or giving to the disciples at that time. He says, basically, don't relax the commands. He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands and teaches others will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. He says, don't, don't, don't try to, to minimize what I'm asking you to do. Don't try to minimize what God's law says. This is just obey it. Now, um, we need to, and I'm going to get to this in a second here, but we need to understand of how this translates into today. And I'll get there in just a second. So if you're thinking about that, say, well, wait a minute here. I know the law in the Old Testament asks us to do some pretty interesting things. The law talks about having clothes with mixed fibers. The, the law talks about all these things. So are you saying that Jesus is saying, don't relax one of those things. You've got to fulfill all of those. Not necessarily I'm going to get there. So if you're thinking about that, just hang on just one more second. He says, don't relax these things, though. Make sure that there's the priority there. Take the commands of Scripture seriously. Knowing Jesus gives us great freedom because we can have freedom to obey the law and not fear of condemnation. But knowing Jesus does not give us freedom to do whatever we want. That's a mistake many people who claim to be Christians or claim to be disciples make. They say, well, I believe in Jesus, so I can just do whatever I want because he saved me anyway. And that attitude and that thought actually just shows that you're probably not a disciple of Christ, if that's your thought process. Because Jesus here says, no, the law, the word is important. So he says, don't relax the commands. Instead, he says to obey them and to teach them. Now, I said that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but here's the point. He also didn't leave it the same. And that's where we get into this Old Testament commands of the mixed fibers and what about the dietary restrictions? What about going into the temple and all these type of things? You see, Jesus came and fulfilled all of those things. And, and, and this is one of those subjects that we either need to spend 10 minutes on or we need to spend 10 sermons on. Okay, and we're choosing to do 10 minutes right now. So uh, we're going to do the helicopter tour over because once you start drilling down into these things, it gets, it gets pretty in-depth. And, and again, I'm not saying you can't handle it. I'm just saying we don't have the time right now. But if you want to talk about it, we can talk about it. But Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but he didn't leave it the same. He came to fulfill it. So when we talk about the law, really most people have it broken into three categories. And I mentioned them earlier. There's the civil category because they were under a theocracy at the time, meaning that God was the king. And so there was the rule of how to live. Today, we're not under a theocracy. The civil laws that were given there don't really translate. There were ceremonial laws. How to, uh, in the tabernacle, in the temple, and all that, what you could eat, what you couldn't eat, Opportunity, the laws that dealt with purification and cleanliness and all those type of things. Jesus fulfilled those things. In the temple, when he died on the cross, the Bible says the, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies and the outer court, the holy place, that, they, uh, that was ripped apart, showing that now we had access to God because of Jesus' death on the cross. 
So we had some of these things of Jesus fulfilled, and he was keeping them at this time. He wasn't abolishing them, but it's not the same. The ceremonial laws are not the same for us today because of Jesus' work. If you're going to study this out, you want to go to the book of Hebrews and read Hebrews because that would deal with this aspect of it. But there's another category about the law, and that's called the moral code. The idea of how to live, how to treat one another. And Jesus later on would summarize this and he would say this. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two things hang all the law and the prophets. So basically what he's saying is if you make those two things your aim, you got it. That's the key to righteous living. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus is talking about here. So when he says, don't relax these commandments, when he says, don't uh, uh, teach others to relax them, when he says, obey them and teach others to obey them, what he's talking about primarily is because of what's going to happen with what Jesus does is how we live out and treat one another and how we treat God. That's primarily what he's talking about there. So that's the reason why we don't have to worry about the mixed fabrics thing anymore. However, and I don't want to get too off topic here, but since this is part of it, this is where I need to bring this in here so you can have some understanding that this is also an argument that happens when you have conversations with those from the LGBTQ community. They would say, well, you don't know your Bible. You say that homosexuality is wrong, but yet you also have all these laws that deal with mixed fibers and, and you can't eat pork and all these things. You, you're either inconsistent or you don't know your own Bible. That's the argument that happens. So why is it that we would argue and I would teach that homosexuality is a sin and yet it's found in the law and Jesus fulfilled it? The reason being is because in the New Testament, one of the reasons, this isn't the only reason, but the reason I'll give today, one of the reasons is that Jesus and Paul in other places talk in the New Testament reaffirm the uh, God's intention with human sexuality. And so Jesus talks about this, Paul talks about this, and says that no, homosexuality is indeed wrong. So this is the reason why when people throw that argument out there and say, well, wait a minute here, the law is over here and includes this, but yet you, you know, you, you're wearing mixed fibers right now, but you're saying homosexuality is wrong. You're, you're inconsistent. You're a hypocrite. No, it's the fact that in the New Testament, the prohibition against mixed fibers is not, is not given because that was done away with because we're deemed clean before God because of Jesus' blood. But the prohibition against homosexuality is given again. And again, because it, it relates to this, I thought I'd, I'd bring this to our understanding because I know this is a subject and a topic that gets thrown around a lot and we got to think through it as Christians and we want to be honest. And these are actually good opportunities to talk to people and say, well, no, let me explain to you what this really means about Jesus fulfilling this. So Jesus here, he's calling us to righteous living that is, that is guided by the scriptures. And so you and I have to be people of the book. We have to be people that are giving time to the book. He's guided by the scriptures. Now, finally, this morning, Jesus is also calling us to righteous living that surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees. Intentionally, more time was given to the first point than the second point because um, it's a little bit more nuanced than this point. But I do need to spend just a minute explaining this. You see, for us to understand this, it's, um, it's easy for us to miss it. In 
the discipline of biblical interpretation, which is called hermeneutics, uh, one of the most important things to do is you got to go back to the original time of when it was given and try to figure out what they would have understood. Then figure out what the governing principle of the text is, then translate it into contemporary life. That's, that's the best way to interpret Scripture. And that's very helpful in this text. Because for you and me, if we say, if I said to you today, you know, it's good to see you again. You know, I'm just so thankful for you. You are the, you are the, the, the most supreme Pharisee I've ever seen. You know, no one here would take that as a compliment. Everyone would think I would be uh, making fun of you or, or uh, saying that you're a hypocrite something. Now, the reason why is because Jesus, this is the beginning when he starts to deal with the Pharisees and the scribes. And if you want to read more of how he really does it, go over to chapter 23 of Matthew's gospel and you'll see how he really talks about the Pharisees there. But the point is, in this day, if I would have called you a Pharisee, that would have been a high compliment. Because the scribes and the Pharisees, they were people that were considered the most spiritual People. In fact, during that day, there is a saying, and this is how the saying went. It said this, I put it on the screen. If only two men are allowed to enter heaven, then one will certainly be a teacher of the law and the other a Pharisee. Guess who the teacher of the law is? A scribe. This was the saying of the day. People thought these were the, the closest people to God that walked the face of this earth because of their very strict lives and their expertise in the law. And that's who the scribes were. They were the, the supreme experts and teachers of the scriptures. And the Pharisees were the most respected religious people of the day. Their name even comes, most people think, from the idea of separated or separated ones. And so... They were the guardians, interpreters, and teachers of the law, of the scriptures, these scribes and Pharisees. So you've got to understand, when Jesus is talking to disciples, and the crowd's gathering around him, and when he says this, he says, For I tell you, in verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Their response to that was not like you and I would be of, well, duh. Their response to that would have been, who then can enter heaven? That would have been their response. If they can't get there, surely I can't get there. But Jesus said, no, you need to be considered great in the kingdom of heaven. And how do you do that? It's through righteous living that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, when we say it in that way, we think again of performance. We think of what we do. We think of keeping rules and things like that. Is that really what Jesus is talking about? Well, see, you got to understand Matthew's use of the word righteousness is a little bit different than Paul's use of the word righteousness. And Paul almost exclusively, whenever he talks about righteousness in his writings, talks about imputed righteousness or Jesus' goodness and Jesus' keeping the law being put on our account. That's really what, what primarily Paul is talking about here. But Matthew, in his use of the word, is different. According to one commentator, he said this, I put it on the screen, obedience to God's commands. This is righteousness according to Matthew. Obedience to God's commands and a conformity to his character expressed in personal behavior, speech, and attitude. So righteousness, according to one commentator, is this, is that according to Matthew, is obedience to God's commands and conformity to his character expressed in personal behavior, speech, and attitudes. Now, 
when we were preaching on verse 6 of this text of blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, we defined it this way, doing the right thing for the right reasons. That's righteousness. I think that's less wordy and gets to it. Doing the right things for the right reason. And so, how would I summarize what Jesus is saying here, verse 20? I would summarize it this way. That don't think external conformity to God's rules is enough. Don't think that just doing what other people can see is enough. See, what Jesus is doing here, he's rounding out the teaching that he gave in verse 16 of letting your light shine before men. He says, don't think that what I'm talking about is just external conformity. And don't think that, that the, the righteousness of I'm calling to you, the righteous living that I'm calling, to, calling you to, is just being better than the scribes and the Pharisees. It is better, but it's not a way that you can see. See, what Jesus is saying here is that we need to focus on internal matters rather than merely external matters. This is a theme all throughout Jesus' teaching here. He's saying the righteousness that's going to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees and the righteous living that God is calling you and me to today in this hour is that we live motivated out of a heart change and a heart love for God rather than just keeping rules. See, later on, you're going to have to piece this together to get really what Jesus is saying here. But in chapter 23, he is going to call, I think it's chapter 23, but later on in Matthew's gospel, he's going to call the Pharisees. He's going to say, you guys are whitewashed tombs. Now, what he meant by that was that on the outside, you're very clean. On the outside, it looks pure. But inside is nothing but death. And I don't have time to get into it today, and this is what we're going to do in the next three weeks here. We're going to see that this, what Jesus is saying here about internal, is going to be explained and illustrated for us in six different ways in this chapter here. But for right now, because we don't have time to go down all those right now, we're just going to say, here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that the internal matters. And so my question to you is, why do you do what you do? My question to us today is, do we focus on the internal heart attitude towards God, or do we just focus on the external obedience? You see, the Pharisees and the scribes, they were so bound up in their traditions. Later on in chapter 15, Jesus is going to rebuke them for this. And he says, you're, you're so concerned about traditions, but you're not concerned about obeying what I'm really trying to get at here. Jesus is calling them to their heart change. So it is possible to have external obedience to God's word without internal transformation. But it is not possible to have internal transformation without external obedience to God's word. And that's what God's calling us to. Inward change that is resulted in manifest righteous living. He's also saying that we need to get to the spirit of the law and not just the letter of the law. And again, if you were to study chapter 15, you would see that fleshed out a little bit more. And so what I'm saying here is that it's not just possible that some of us here today do the right things for the wrong reasons. It's not just possible that some of us are doing the right things for the wrong reasons. It's actually probable that we do the, wrong, the, the right things for the wrong reasons. I put this question on there on the screen. I just want you to look at it for a second. What would you do if you were 100% guaranteed that no one would find out about it? Think about that. 
What would you do if it was guaranteed no one would ever find out about it? Now, this is not the time to pass the microphone around, okay? (laughs) Because a lot of us would think of pretty bad stuff or things that would serve to our advantage that would be harmful to others or that would give us uh, uh, an advantage in life but at the expense and detriment of someone else. You see, that question there should really cause us to think because it is actually telling us what is in our hearts. I mean, there are so many people. The world is full of people who never did anything really, really bad, but only because they never had the chance or they were afraid. How many of us simply do the right thing because we're afraid of the consequences? We're afraid of getting caught. Now, on one hand, I don't want to overstate this. I mean, that's not bad. I mean, one of the, 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 uh, the reasons that we have uh, consequences is for the deterring effect. But if that's the only reason why we obey God's law, then we have missed what Jesus desires. He desires our hearts. Hearts that are committed to wanting to obey him and love him. You see, this is the discipleship that we're calling us to. This year we're talking about discipleship and, 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 and why do we exist. And we're here to make disciples. And we're here to progress our own discipleship by God's strength and by God's grace. And we've got to get this. It's always about the heart. It's always about inside. Because then, then the other things come. And so when I, when I talk to people, when I ask them questions like, okay, why don't you come to the Adult Discipleship Hour? It's not because I think that going to Adult Discipleship Hour is the standard of being a godly person. But sometimes the only thing that we can deal with is the externals to get a conversation about the heart. And again, I, I, I'm not saying necessarily if you don't go to the Delta Slippage Hour, then you're, you know, you're least in the kingdom of God. That's not my point. But my point is, is that that should be a conversation here of our external things come from the internal motivation. So when people start talking about externals, it should always be to get at the heart, not just the external. And when, we, when we're looking at our own lives and our own discipleship, our own pilgrimage to Jesus... We should think not just about what we're doing or not doing, but why we're doing and why we're not doing things. See, Jesus, this is the, the exceeding righteous of the scribes and the Pharisees that Jesus is talking about, being so concerned about the inside, not just the outside. You see, that was part of the Pharisees' problem was that their obedience to the law was almost entirely selfish in nature. They were obeying to get, not obeying to worship. And Jesus is calling us to obey to worship. So therefore, I think we need to be concerned about showing God's character. That is by an inward change, not just keeping God's command. And the only way that we can have the surpassing righteousness is to be in a close relationship with Jesus. I put this quote by John, excuse me, by Dietrich Bonhoeffer on the screen. He was a German theologian, and he said this. This righteousness is therefore not a duty owed, but a perfect and truly personal communion with God. And Jesus not only possesses this righteousness, but he himself is the personal embodiment of it. He is the righteousness of the disciple. 
You see, this is why we have to have a close relationship with Jesus and that he's got to be our satisfaction and our joy and our burning desire and motivator for our life is because that is the only thing that's going to produce righteous living that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. It's a heart that's committed to Jesus. And that's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for me, our church here. That we're just a group of disciples that are flawed, that we, we make mistakes, we're not perfect, we, we don't have as many talents and abilities as other people, but we have a heart for Jesus. That's my desire. Because that's the righteous living that surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees. So I think, in conclusion, I think that, I think some of us need to really look at our hearts. I think we need to spend some time and ask God to, to parse out the motives of why we do what we do. And then I think we need to repent and say, God, I don't want to do good things for the praise of man. I don't want to do things just because it's habit. I want to do things out of sincere love for you. That's the righteous living that surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees. And that's what Jesus said is going to be considered great in the kingdom of heaven. So the question is, if life were the end, and you were to go to heaven, would you be considered great in the kingdom of heaven? Would God look at your heart and say, you know, this was a heart that was committed to me. This was one that was guided by the scriptures and had a love for me and was dedicated to me. Or would he say, this person kept the rules because they felt like they had to, because they were trying to earn something, or they were too embarrassed not to. That's Pharisee. That's scribe righteousness. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I'm calling you to something that surpasses that. So I put it on the screen again. The greatest in God's kingdom are those who follow Christ's example by pursuing righteous living. And we're going to look at six examples that Jesus unpacks this important truth over the next few weeks. Well, let's pray. Father, I do pray that if we're disciples here, that we would take this very seriously, that you're after a heart that's committed to you, not just external obedience. This is one of the uh, things that makes Christianity so much different than many other religions is that it's all about hearts, about personal relationship. It's not just about external conformity or measuring up or doing good enough to be accepted. Now, Christianity is all about admitting that we can't do it, admitting that we need you, we need your righteousness, and then just giving you our heart. And so there's some here today that need to trust you as their Savior. And I pray, Spirit of God, you do what only you can do. And that's convict him of this truth. And some of us here need to go back to asking, why is it that we do what we do? And maybe we've had the wrong motives. Spirit of God, do what only you can do. And that's convict us of that. And may we cry out to you in repentance and experience the sweetness of being restored in your fellowship. Lord, we love you. And we pray that we would. Live this way that Jesus has taught us. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.